Bounty hunting is a complicated profession, which is why we're here to discuss The Mandalorian, currently airing on Disney+. My name is Dan Morin, and this is the show where I invite on a different special guest every week to discuss the most recent episode of The Mandalorian. And this week, it's a very special guest, our only repeat guest of the season. It's my amazing, talented, wonderful wife, Kat Benish. Hi, Kat. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. I'm so happy that you were able to join me for our season finale wrap up once again. You were the guest on the season one finale as well. Yes, which I think was a really great conversation. I remember we were just talking about at the end of that conversation, we were talking about the Darksaber and what that meant and like, would we see Ahsoka in this season? And the season did not disappoint. Yeah, no, we, we are, we're very prescient. <laughs> the force was with us uh all right well uh, you know you talked a little bit last season about how much you liked the show and what you liked about it but since we've now seen season two i wondered if you want to take a minute to talk about what you liked or maybe even what you didn't like about season two yeah i think i'm I'm still working through it all we just uh re-watched the last episode i was thinking and comparing sort of the emotional arc of the first season and the last episode to the emotional arc of this season um and I don't know. I mean, it, I think this is actually a show where it's one of the cases where I actually think the first season is stronger. I think about that last season uh, when they're going out in the the lava tunnel and the droid. I'm going to get all their names wrong. Um, but that was a really, really emotional moment. Whereas this one, it was more along the, if it makes sense, more along the journey. Like each episode I thought was a very good standalone episode. But the end was, uh, I think, perhaps not quite as emotionally resonant to me. Uh, I'm not sure that's a little more used to the characters or I'm expecting it. And the first season just was so different than anything else being on. But I think overall, I, I really did like the season. And um, I, I think like many people, I'm intrigued to see, are we wrapping up this book? Are we moving on to a new Mandalorian? Um, and I think one thing I'd, I'd like to talk a lot on the podcast today is like, fundamentally, whose story are we telling? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because this season two seems to verge into the wider Star Wars world, right? Like tie-ins from books and comics and, uh, you know, characters from other series and stuff like that. And, you know, that was a, you know, there were some rare moments in the first season where we saw tie-ins to places or people that we knew. This seemed like much more connected to the overall Star Wars universe. And that, I think... Mm is fun for people who are Star Wars fans, but also could potentially be a distraction from the elements of the show that we had grown accustomed to in season one. Oh, yeah, I think that's actually a great point. I think that's exactly what I'm feeling. Like the first season was very much self-contained in this world with Moth Gideon. Um, I forget the name of that planet. Again, very bad at names. What was the planet called? Where, where at the end of season one? Yes. Navarro. Navarro. Uh, everything was contained on Navarro, around the characters, around the child. And this one was much more of a... I don't know, of like, this is Bo-Katan, and here's Ahsoka, and here are all these other characters, and here, well, here Boba Fett is back. Yeah. And it's so like, uh, a who's who, um, which was great for storytelling, but again, it was more, we were seeing the world of Star Wars through the Mandalorian's eyes, rather than the story being about the Mandalorian. I think that's a good point. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into the overall uh, recap of, this is chapter 16, The Rescue. Uh, I think there's actually two rescues in this episode or like they're kind of part of the same rescue but like i think there's like a two-stage rescue happening here <laughs> um so we start out with slave one attacking a lambda class shuttle and on board that shuttle are two imperial pilots and dr pershing who we most recently saw in holographic form a few episodes ago 
I will note, uh, there's been an ongoing theme this year of a lot of Imperial officers who are also actors who I saw on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that continues here with the really annoying pilot guy, the evil pilot guy who is the was the big bad in the last episode, in the last season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Nathaniel Malick. So that was an interesting little pop-up again. I think he's like the fourth or fifth character like in the Empire to be on, have been on S.H.I.E.L.D. Very weird. Uh, they disable the shuttle with an ion cannon and the Mando boards. Um, the That annoying pilot holds the Dr. Pershing hostage and tells about how, how important he is. He's a clone engineer. And when the his co-pilot tries to be like cut a deal, he shoots him in the back. So yeah, that guy's a real, he's a real emperor diehard, I guess. And and to jump in there, Dan, is this the first time that we know he was a clone engineer? Cause yeah, not- I don't think we knew exactly what he was. We knew he was a scientist, right? And like they make a comment at some point at the beginning, they were like, this isn't your lab, you know? And we saw him obviously being involved with the testing and of, of Grogu and the something about the blood and the M count and all that jazz. But yeah, I think this is the first time we hear about him being a clone engineer. I think goes to the question of, and especially if this is the sort of the end of the book of Grogu, um, what were they doing with the Jedi's blood, and and what was he trying to work on? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I don't think we know. I mean, there's a lot of speculation out there, and there's you know some thoughts that maybe it ties in with stuff that is in the sequel trilogy, such as Snoke or the fact that there are Palpatine clones. Spoilers <laughs> if you haven't seen the sequel <laughs> trilogy, but I'm gonna kind of assume that if you're here, you have. Um. So he holds Dr. Pershing hostage, and then he has sort of a, a, a little bit of uh, banter. It's not quite the right word, but back and forth with Cara Dune, mm-hmm. uh, re- re- uh, recognizing that she's from Alderaan. So apparently that's the significance of the little rebel tattoo she has under the her eye. The tear uh, is, I guess, an Alderanian thing, which makes sense, I guess, because the X-Wing pilot in a few episodes ago also noticed that she was from Alderaan, right? Like when he uh, offers her the badge. Uh, he says, like, oh, did you lose anybody on Alderaan? And she said, I lost everybody. So I guess that's kind of a known thing. Um, he tries to defend that with some, like, moral relativism about how they blew up the Death Star and how many millions were killed on those stations, which is a, uh, feels like a classic callback to Clerks, where the two guys are having the conversation about all the just the ordinary people on the Death Star. So, yeah, oh, I don't know. the if, banality that, of evil, though. You're complicit. Yeah. Is, is this, like, Death Star trutherism? Is this what this is? Uh... Kara gets tired of listening to him talk about how blowing up Alderaan was justifying, like, ending terror, etc., and she just shoots him in the head. Uh, so now they have Dr. Pershing. They fly to another planet, this very industrial planet with smokestacks and factories, uh, and they land next to a Mandalorian ship that uh, I think we recognize because we had just rewatched the last arc in Clone Wars, uh, where uh, these characters show up, and they have that crazy ship that has, like, the wings that rotate. And uh, two Mandos walk into a bar. <laughs> I don't know what the end of that joke is, but that's the beginning. And did, and let me know if you want to how you want to sort of do this stopping or going into. It, but I, I think it was also again it, it's been interesting to me throughout the series too about the continued world building they do. And yeah, we I, I literally just watched Clone Wars the first time, and I, I really really enjoy about like the subtle. The planet we walked on, clearly an industrial planet, like all the smokestacks and the some sort of whether it was smelting or whatever they're doing, like everywhere we look, it's like such a stark, because like Star Trek is now on TV again, just like a stark reminder of like the view of how they're using resources and the extraction. Mm -hmm. We saw that on Ahsoka's planet too. And just like the constant reminders of just like how, I don't know, it just, it feels so tactile and real and just like gritty and everything we see i think there's also an association with it with um 
in the original trilogy, I think obviously the 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 analogy of the stormtroopers, even by their very name, was to essentially Nazis, right? Because that was the evil that was easily recognized by the people of that era, right? Like everybody could agree that those were bad guys. And I think in some ways what's interesting watching both Clone Wars and uh, The Mandalorian and I think Rebels too, um, there's a much stronger association with the evils of the Empire being associated with essentially the destructions of the environment. Mm-hmm. Like as an analogy, again, for something that feels like a, a, a way to shorthand it, right? Like these people are bad because not only are they evil and they're killing people, but they're destroying worlds, right? They're, they're strip mining things and they're... To build weapons yes, to build and weapons. armies. Exactly. And like, it's not even to build something that is good for everyone, but it is, and I think the... Um, the constant theme too of of who who are you fighting for and and who is benefiting from this, mm-hmm. um, which I do think over you're right over the years and Solo gets into this too of just beginning to pull uh, pull on the thread of the common people being suffer suffering through all of this while uh, the gods fight above. Right, exactly. That's a great point. Um, so in the bar they find Bo-Katan and Koska Reeves, and there's a little bit of a tense interchange between the four quote unquote Mandalorians. Uh, where uh, Mandal- uh, Mandalorian, I mean, I'm going to have to call him by his name, <laughs> Din Jaren asks for their help. Uh, and they're sort of first, like, a little dismissive, like, look, we're not all bounty hunters. Uh, and even the second Boba Fett speaks, and he's a little dismissive of them, uh, they uh, kind of immediately jump on him. And Bo-Katan's like, you are not a Mandalorian. Uh, and, and I was then, trying to figure out, like, how, how does she know? How does she know that he's not a Mandalorian? He's wearing Mandalorian armor. Like, how could you possibly know? Yeah. Yeah. And we get into that in a second. But first, he and, and Koska Reeves have a little bit of a spat about sidekicks and who gets to talk. And they discuss, uh, well, the you know, the Empire took the kid and Moff Gideon has him. The Bo-Katan thinks there's basically, you should give up at this point. You'll never find him. And like, well, we already did find him, by the way. <laughs> We're good. Uh, and... Bo-Katan's interested, obviously, because Moff Gideon has the Darksaber, and uh, Din also offers her sort of like, if you help me, you can take the light cruiser, and if you want to Mandalore back, that seems like it would be helpful. Uh, and Fett's also dismissive of that idea, saying the Empire turned that planet to glass. And then they sort of take him on, like, you're a disgrace to your armor. This armor belonged to my father. And I think she says, don't you mean your donor? <laughs> I've heard your voice thousands of times. Uh, once again, tying in last week, we had him make the joke that he oh, wouldn't go great. to the base because they would they would recognize his face. <laughs> great, great line. Probably the funniest line in The Mandalorian. Uh, and then this time, she knows the voice. And obviously, you know, for those who have seen Clone Wars, uh, you know, Bo-Katan fights side by side with clones at a few points. So clearly she would know. And I think I saw our friend and uh, I know an incomparable listener, Will Wagner, mentioning at some point, like, what happened when Order 66 descended on Mandalore, right? Like, there were clones there when, when it happened. So what kind of destruction did that wreak on that world, right? Like, they, I mean, essentially, they were immediately under Imperial control, it seems like, but we, we've never seen the exact outcomes of that. Uh, so there's a little bit of a fight. Uh, you know, Boba Fett seems like he has the upper hand for a little bit. Then Koska Reeves, like, uh, and this is a, she's a WWE fighter, I believe, <laughs> quickly takes him down. And then they're like shooting their flamethrowers at each other. And finally, Bo-Katan calls them off. Is like, look, all right, we'll do this. Um, I want, but she also tries to get Din to reconsider joining up with the Mandalorian thing, which is an interesting foreshadowing, well, I that, feel like. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a question of like, if... If the end of this series, we truly do shift over to Boba Fett, it does leave a lot of questions of, I, I do wonder if we're going to show, see what happens next. Because I think, 
and throughout, like, in, especially in the season, right, there are so many potential threads we could go down. Are we going to go down the Thrawn thread? Are we going to go find Ezra, also from Rebels? Are we going to go retake Mandalore? And it does seem like we are, that group is clearly going to team up eventually to retake Mandalore. Um, or are we just going to drop that storyline altogether and go tell the Boba Fett story? I just don't see why you would drop it altogether. But yeah, I, I mean, there's so much laid into it here and so much time has been spent with the Darksaber and laying out what it means in this episode. I have a hard time believing they would just be like, and that's the end of the story. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like this, what is fascinating to me too about this, and you, you and I were talking about this, is like, again, whose story are we telling? And it's often through the lens of the Mandalorian, but not necessarily, there are so many times where there's all these unstated questions um and we just don't get into them for example how do they find that lambda ship right how do they find the doctor with the sunglasses um whole other story there's some stuff that's elided i think for the purposes of keeping the episodes to a reasonable level which is fine which i agree with but at the same time i i don't unlike other shows i feel like i'd be curious to know if they feel like they can just sort of step away from the story and let the Mm. imagination and come back to it at some point right yeah i think that's plausible i mean we've seen that in the way that dave filoni especially does work with like clone wars and rebels right there was stuff that went unanswered there and then would get dealt with years later in a different show right like what happened to ahsoka or you know what happened to the clones who survived and you know we don't mind picking that up much later i mean the end of rebels has some not to again not to spoil it for those who haven't seen it but there are some threads dangled there that have been now picked up in mandalorian and it's like those were years apart and they're different shows and different formats and all of that and it's an interesting it strikes me as them feeling very comfortable Mm -hmm. and confident in their storytelling and the same way too right and again i they that's why but like they put together the last season of clone wars after rebels had come out and they're clearly because mm-hmm. of how rebels goes they went back and told some different stories in clone wars um and the same thing too i wonder i wonder what they'll to the point will they'll do with this um yeah so the child is all that matters to the mandalorian he doesn't really care he, you know thinks bo-katan can kill gideon and get the dark saber whatever doesn't matter to him they interrogate dr pershing who is very helpful for reasons that we don't understand <laughs> at all. Uh, that was definitely just wave your hands at the plot. Yeah, they could have thrown in a line or something, been like, I'm a scientist, I have no love for Moff Gideon, or something like that, or he threatened my family, or something. And I feel like at least then we'd be like, oh, okay, I can see why he's doing this. But they don't even spend that time. To, or maybe to it was that. meant to be a trap? I'm not sure. Yeah, possibly. But he tells them about the dark troopers and says there's a garrison there. Like after they're like, oh, there's just a few stormtroopers on it. Totally easy. Like we took down that ship like three episodes ago with a bunch of stormtroopers. Not a problem. Uh, And so they learn the dark troopers are droids. This is the third generation design because the human was the weakness. Or or Cylons. I, again, yes. argue that they look a lot like Cylons, which I think is great since Katie Sackhoff plays Bo-Katan. And for those who don't know, she is a key member of Battlestar Galactica as Starbuck. So it's just like, it does really come full circle here. I think what was funny about that too is you and I were commenting like, <laughs> also like things go full circle because like in the prequels where they're fighting all the armies of droids and it's like we've gone back around to deciding that droids are the best it's like <laughs> did you not remember how that worked out last time um and i mean you know i also understand that it, it gives you a threat that's scarier than stormtroopers and that you know din jaren doesn't like droids so you know maybe that lets him take out his frustrations a little bit and you can kill droids and not feel too bad about it um, but we also, I think, had our joking moment about joking that there were, uh, you know, standard battle droids in there with them, like, oh, no, a Jedi! Like, <laughs> Roger, Roger. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Pershing gives them the, the story about the light cruiser uh, and tells them they need, the dark troopers need a few minutes to power up. The child's in the brig. Uh, the 
uh, two Mandalorians, Cara Dune, and Fennec Shand will be the misdirection. They'll like run in, draw a crowd, shoot a bunch of people, and the Mandalorian will sneak off to get the kid. Um, but he needs to seal off the bay with the dark troopers before they get out, because that's a real problem. Bo-Katan wants to kill Gideon. Uh, Cara Dune wants him alive because he's former ISB and has a lot of information. Bo-Katan super cagey here. Yeah, this is this is on her. I think we watching through her. her what was her language like? I need he needs, he to, needs surrender to surrender to me, me yeah. right? Which I think for anyone else would assume that I just want to be the one that beats him. He needs to come with me at the end. It, it sort of speaks to what result she wants. Yes, she glossed over the fact that she needs to sort of like a different uh, action or how you get there is what matters most. And I think that's. I mean, obviously, they need to tell that for the tension in the story at the end, but it's it's definitely on her that she's very cagey there about that she specifically doesn't need Gideon at the end. She needs to be the one to specifically defeat him in order to right. get the dark Darksaber. And I think she's deliberately cagey about it because she's a little worried that with Fett and Din Djarin there, uh, that they might try to essentially make a play for having Gideon surrender to them. Kind of also not aware that they either don't care or are unaware of that as a as a formality, right? Like, I, I think in some ways she's trying to play her cards close to her vest, and that backfires. So they jump out of hyperspace, and Slave One pretends to chase, chase the shuttle. Some TIE fighters get deployed, um, but the shuttle shoots through them anyways and crash lands to take out the fighter tube so the TIE fighters can't get out. This plan's a little weird because, like... Once they take out the TIE Fighters, it's, I guess, uh, in theory, to stop them from shooting Boba Fett. But Boba Fett's, like, already gone at that point. So the order of operations here doesn't either doesn't quite go as they planned or it was just not a very good but plan. Boba Fett takes out at least one of the TIE Fighters before he goes. I think they yeah. want to prevent him from being overwhelmed by TIE Fighters right. or letting the TIE Fighters out and let them figure out that the Lambda Shuttle was, in fact, like, clearly uh, a cover. I don't know. I thought it was actually a very cool tactic to explain... Um, the launching of TIE fighters and, and some, it was a nice sort of a hint of military strategy. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I like the idea of like, let's block the TIE fighters and, and like, it gives us a good beachhead. Some people were speculating that like not having Fett come along was to avoid an awkward conversation later. But I also think that that was part <laughs> of his plan is like, he was supposed to be there and then be gone. He wasn't there to like go on the assault. Somebody had to fly the ship and it's not like he could. And Fett didn't know Luke was him. coming. Yeah. Right. Who did? Um, so uh, once they crash land and uh, Boba Fett takes out the last tie, he jumps to hyperspace and goes away. The assault team just starts mowing through stormtroopers. Uh, Gideon realizing they are under attack, which he should have realized because the Mandalorian sent him an email last week being like, I'm coming for you. <laughs> uh, which, I don't know. Is that a good strategic move? I'm not sure. Uh, he activates the dark troopers. Uh, once the ladies, and they are all four ladies, which is a pretty awesome moment of it like very cool, super capable. They don't spend a lot of time drawing attention to it either, which is nice, right? Like they're not. There was no like hero shot. You basically have halfway through realize it's just four incredibly badass women um, taking down a light cruiser. Uh, so after they've done that, Mandalorian sneaks on. He's got his best car spear. Um, there's a weird scene where they uh, walk across the four uh, women walk <laughs> across a room with like. Uh, there's a bridge and there's force fields underneath that are open into space and they realize like this is a choke point and so the mandalorians like fly underneath and then they get you know jump from behind and then the mandalorians fly up and shoot all the stormtroopers and some of them and, fall through the force looks, field it looks really cool it yeah. looks really really cool but to your point is when we were watching is like why does this exist <laughs> what is it for 
It's like the classic thing from those who have seen Galaxy Quest, right? When they recreate the like, there are all these things on spaceships that exist entirely for like these cool moments, but actually, from a purely engineering standpoint, make zero sense. And again, I we talked about this last time about the Imperial supply chains. I have a lot of question about the OSHA standards of the Imperials. I don't right, think there are any. They, no way. They make that joke uh, a few weeks ago when they insult the Imperial base, and the uh, guys like, "There's no guardrails on this. It's above <laughs> lava." Like. Why? Why would you build this? It's cheap, I guess. Yeah. You don't have to build like a deck underneath. You just, I just put a force field there. Because the force field is cheaper than Durasteel. I guess so. I yeah. Um, as they're assaulting, there's a moment where Kara's gun jams and she just turns it into a club and beats up a bunch of stormtroopers, which I guess is you know making the best of a bad situation, but also you know check the reliability of your weapons, I guess. Um, as the Mandalorian is sneaking through. Taking his time. I think both of us were commenting like... So slow. Yeah. Hurry up, so hurry up, slow. man. He's trying to avoid, avoid some stormtroopers who I guess have really low visibility in their helmet because they can't see him like hide behind something <laughs> at one point. There's a droid at one point uh, that he like sneaks by. And of course, all of this means that by the time he shows up at the Dark Trooper Bay, he's a little late. Uh, he just manages to almost get the door closed and then a Dark Trooper like pries it open with his really scary face. Uh, one of them gets out before the doors get sealed. And he starts trying to shoot it, which doesn't do jack against the Dark Troopers. Uh, and the Dark Trooper just, instead of shooting him, just starts punching him in the face, like, a lot. Uh, and we were debating this time, what, what, is, what are the Dark Troopers made of? Because it doesn't seem... So the Beskar doesn't dent at all, which is consistent with kind of what we know about Beskar. But the Dark Trooper doesn't seem particularly bothered by it either. So it's kind of like unstoppable force meets a movable object or something like the decking all gets bent out of shape behind his helmet because he's just smashing him into it there's a cool shot where he tries to set it on fire that was great yeah where it's like there's like flames coming out of his like collarbone and stuff uh very reminiscent of like the terminator yeah and doesn't seem to do much either uh meanwhile the rest of the dark troopers are trying to like break through the glass uh, in the doors uh, he uses his whistling birds. They don't seem to do much. And after he sort of gets thrown across the deck, he remembers, oh, yeah, I brought this spear. And he stabs the, the dark trooper through the neck, which actually seems to do a pretty good job. Which is good. And I think at that point, too, it's interesting. He then switches over to the spear for basically the rest the rest of the episode. Mm-hmm. But sort of, I think it's a real moment of going from this is a thing I'll just carry around to this is now a weapon of choice. Yeah, right. And it's consistent, right? Because it's Beskar. So, like, that's kind of his thing. And we've seen before that he's talented with the hand-to-hand combat stuff. So, oh yeah, the the choreography was it in that one where he? No, it's with Moth Gideon. Then he's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so after he defeats that one dark trooper, he runs over and vents the rest of the dark troopers into space, which seems like a great moment. I remember when we first watched it, we both cheered, and I think you immediately pointed out, but they're droids. Space shouldn't bother them. <laughs> I was like, it's a really good point. In the elevator, Kara's trying to get her gun to work again and eventually smashes it on the floor and then they bulldoze their way through everybody on the deck all the way through the bridge, killing everybody but finding no Moff Gideon. Uh, Mando takes out a couple stormtroopers with the spear again and then walks into the brig to find Gideon waiting for him, holding the darksaber over Groku. Gideon, what makes Giancarlo Esposito a fun villain is that he's super smug mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, about everything. So like here he's like, assume I know everything. <laughs> like he like he pulls like a like almost like a dirty hairy on him with like I know you've used all the bullets in your whistling birds. That was the only shot you had, and like he's like your most annoying friend who knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just constantly being like, oh, did you know this sword was once owned by Bo Katan? Huh? Huh? Yeah, I know you're with Bo Katan. 
the uh, and it's also I, was, I think at this point too we were talking about the um, uh, two interesting things. One, uh, Grogu, as you pointed out, is is very tired, likely because at this point he's had all his blood drawn, and I think that also explains why. What's interesting this season is we don't see in the first season Grogu does a lot of very cool, almost like Deus ex ex machina force moves. He doesn't do any of those in season two. Well, he does do he. There's the scene where Moff Gideon first comes in the brig and he throws all the stormtroopers around. Oh, that's true. That's true. He is yeah. doing that. But he does less this season, I think, in part because he's not trying to necessarily protect himself as much. Like the Mandalorian is protecting him a lot more, so maybe he just doesn't need to. But yeah, it's, you're, it's true that he doesn't do as much force wielding in this season, it feels like, as season one. Um, Gideon, uh, he's got a couple interesting points here. I like that he calls, he, he points out that, that Bo-Katan and everybody else murdered everyone on the bridge because they're like the murderous savages that they are, which again is kind of pot calling the kettle black, I guess, at this point. Um, but he explains that Bo-Katan wants the Darksaber because it brings power. And he's kind of willing to make a trade here, right? Because he realizes that Mando just wants the kid. And he's like, oh, I see you've got a bond with him. Um, well, I've got what I want. I just wanted the blood. I just want to study it because it can bring order back to the galaxy. So he's like really faking being reasonable here. He's like, yeah, you just take the kid. Leave me my ship. We go our separate ways and we don't ever see each other again. Fair? And I was surprised with this because he then, obviously, then then actually instigates a fight. Um, but does, I, and I guess... <laughs> We see this later, too, with uh, Moth Gideon determining once Luke shows up and then actually then trying to shoot at the child of, like, is Moth Gideon actually done with the child or not? Mm-hmm. Would, like, it seems like he he's so convincing in the deal. Like, I actually presumed he was going to take a deal. And I thought there'd actually be a really interesting moment there where um, the Mandalorian says beforehand, the only thing I care about is the kid. He doesn't care about Moth Gideon. He yeah. doesn't care about the Darksaber. And I was wondering if there's going to be this really interesting almost moral dilemma of he would just take the kid and go yeah um but that that isn't set up because then the marketing immediately turns around and 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 breaks that that deal yeah um but I really kind of wonder what is Moth Gideon's motivation here yeah I think it's a really interesting point I thought the same thing which is like he's gonna have to essentially throw Bo-Katan under the bus because his priority is the child and that's gonna put him in an awkward position vis-a-vis the other Mandalorians. <laughs> I'm ready to go, guys. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, he's saved from making that decision because Moff Gideon immediately turns around and starts trying to hit him with a Darksaber. Fortunately, Beskar. Uh, the one guy in the entire galaxy who's got a suit entirely made out of Beskar, as far as we can tell, um, you know, is fairly immune. I guess there's plenty of places on his body where, like, if he hit him in the neck or the knee or something like that, there might be some unguarded areas, but it seems like his armor holds out pretty well. So he gets, you know, whacked on a bunch here, but he's like blocking with his gauntlets and everything. And he finally sort of gets his feet underneath him and grabs the spear. And then we have a really great fight. That was great. Um, where uh, he's, you know, again, it seems like I think the interesting part with the Darksaber is it's fundamentally being wielded here by somebody who is, as far as we can tell, has no special skills, right? Like he's not a Jedi, does not have any force powers. And that's something we've seen before in the Darksaber's appearances. It tends to be wielded by Mandalorians. Um, but when you put it up against somebody who's got a weapon that, if not as devastating as the Darksaber, is at least, you know, able to do battle with it, the Mandalorian seems far better equipped, right? Like, he is much better trained, much more of mm-hmm. a warrior than Moff Gideon is here. Um, I think we both called out a really awesome shot where, like, the spear's behind him and he, like, kicks it backwards over and then, like, brings that it down. Great. That was just a really cool shot. The Mandalorian eventually disarms him. 
And Moff Gideon says, oh, you're sparing my life. This should be interesting. And I want to call out Giancarlo Esposito here for like, right after he utters that, and he seems again, very, very self-confident and everything. There's a little shot at the end of him where he, you can see like the doubt creeps into his face. Like he's, he's afraid. And I thought that was just a lovely moment by the actor to show like, that confidence is is kind of a bluff, right? Mm-hmm. Like he is putting that show on because he knows that it gets him places feeling like, you know, he's the smartest person in the room. But it's not to suggest that he's not vulnerable or that he doesn't have fears about what's going to happen to him. So the Mandalorian brings um, the child and Moff Gideon in uh, tied up like to the bridge. And he's got the Darksaber out. And as soon as oh, Bo-Katan sees him. Such a great shot. And the fact that he has the Darksaber lit up Katie Sackhoff's face as they walk in. It's just so, so well done. Yeah, she's freaking out. Like, she's like, oh, crap. (laughs) And so there's a whole discussion about, like, what happened? Like, I thought we had a deal. You know, what he was supposed to surrender to me, kind of. And um, again, Moff Gideon decides to be the fly in the ointment here, suggesting that she just kill Din and take the sword because it turns out that because the Mandalorian beat Moff Gideon in combat, the Darksaber is by right of combat his. and Bo-Katan can't just take it from him, even if he tries to yield, because she has to win it in combat. Otherwise, she's only a pretender to the throne. And there's a great bit with Gideon cackling here as well. (laughs) And there's a question there, too. And I know not all your listeners have listened to or or watched Rebels. But the last time we had seen the Darksaber was when Sabine Wren, who's in Rebels, actually gives the Darksaber to Bo-Katan. Like, that's how Bo-Katan gets the Darksaber, as discussed. What I can't remember and what we should have looked at beforehand is how if does Sabine give it to Bo-Katan? Has Bo-Katan actually never won it in battle? Yeah, that might be. That's a good point because I'm thinking, trying to think back to that last thing of, does she win it from, um, from um, uh, uh, Vizsla? I can't remember who beats Vizsla in the end in, in that moment. Like she's not, mostly not in charge of Mandalore is the mm. problem, right? Like I think um, Maul has it at one point. Uh, and so there's a lot of back and forth where yeah, it moves I around a remember. lot. But that's a great point that she's never won it, which is she which may is have a your point in in the end of Clone Wars. But yeah, no, it's a it is an interesting thing there. And um, so now that everything you know kind of is at this tense moment, we then have all of a sudden the alarms go off on the bridge, and they're asking about life forms. And there's a nice moment where they're like, "There aren't any life forms. The dark troopers are back. They just flew back to the ship." And the music on that was great. I really appreciate the. Uh, I don't know if it's the the heavy electronic music that is very reminiscent of the heist episode mm, from mm-hmm. season one, sort of that same jarring sound, which is, it's great. I really like how the Dark Troopers almost have their own musical motif. Yes, very, the, the electronica. Seems apt. Um, Gideon hides a blaster at one point, like he's fallen down over one of his officers and he like puts his cloak over it. So he's got a plan there. We see that Grogu is very sleepy here. Um, and we see the droids march on up to the, the blast doors to the bridge. And then they have this great moment where, like, they stop and then everything starts whirring. Like, it sounds like your computer's fans kicking up as they, like, then start punching their way through the blast door. Gideon is smirking because he knows he's got the upper hand. Everybody is standing on the bridge ready to face off against the doors or a couple nice shots of them all lined up. And the Gideon says, like, ah, you've got a very impressive team. But we know after a valiant stand, everyone in this room would be dead but me and the child. Because at this point, then, he wants the, ch- the going back to sort of, like, what is his motivation is he still wants the child alive presuming that he gets the child yes i think that's true uh it's again i I agree with you that his motivations are unclear i think he's more of an opportunist than Mm. anything like he's gonna like you said as long as he can have it uh have grogu and get the like benefit of continually taking his blood i guess then 
there's no downside, but he'd rather, if he can't have it, no one can, right? Right. If he can't have the child, nobody can. Um, So as the tension mounts and the music ratchets up and everything, and it looks like the Dark Troopers are going to blast through, all of a sudden there's another alarm and an incoming X-Wing. I did enjoy Kara's line, one X-Wing? Great, we're saved. (laughs) Well, it's also too the uh, what's great. What's speaking into the music is the the because it was that harsh grating electronic music. It just fades and becomes mm-hmm. very very quiet. There's a very melodious bit that comes in here, almost like a I don't know if it's a wind or whatever, but it's like a flute almost. Mm. So the uh, the craft lands, doesn't identify itself, and then we start seeing Grogu like perk up, his ears go up, and everything. Very so cute. cute, so cute. Uh, the dark troopers stop punching and turn around, and I, I agree with you here. Like that, the um, it seems like they've realized there's a there's another threat, right? Like there's yeah. an intruder, there's a bigger threat happening, and like that's the point where also there's another great reaction shot of Giancarlo Esposito as Gideon is like freaking out a little bit now, and he you see him like kind of wide eyed like what who wait i know that if the dark troopers are gonna stop punching through this door it's because something else way worse is coming <laughs> yeah and this is a great one the first time i'm watching i know we all know who know who was but i think ever since was it episode six when we uh, when grogu is kidnapped mm-hmm. the question is grogu clearly made a connection with the force which Jedi would they bring to train him? Right. Uh, and as soon as the X-Wing shows up, you're like, it, it becomes clear and clear who it's going to be. But there are a couple possibilities. Um, and I, I do love that they hide Luke's identity till, till the very end. Though, right. obviously, there are clear indicators. Yeah, they, they, they start, they sort of like slowly spin it out, right? Like, first you see someone in a cloak. And you're like, well, I guess it could be Ahsoka. It could be someone else. Then you see, like, the green lightsaber. And you're like, well, there's a lot of green lightsabers. <laughs> um and then you see the glove and like then the tunic and everything. And like as you go, you become more and more convinced that it's Luke Skywalker. Uh, back on the bridge for a moment, Gideon decides this is his, his opportunity. He shoots Bo Katan a bunch with the blaster, but I guess her armor must be at least some Beskar because like she goes down, but she's up later. Uh, then he tries to kill Grogu to our point earlier, but the Mandalorian dives in front of it, blocks him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he tries to shoot himself. Uh, and Cara Dune basically knocks the gun out from under his chin and knocks him out. So he's still alive, as far as we know. There's also a bunch of scenes now where, like, Grogu is, like, touching the monitor. Oh, was as great. Luke makes his way through the ship, uh, just mowing down dark troopers left and right with his lightsaber. And then at the last bit, right, where he's making way to the bridge, he's, like, crushes one. That <laughs> like, was, he, like, yeah. <laughs> like a car in, like, a compactor. <laughs> Everyone's still sort of tense here. And then, you know, the Mandalorian... I think somebody recognizes as a Jedi, maybe Bo-Katan, and uh, the Mandalorian tells him to open the doors, and they're like, really? Are you sure? And he's like, come on. Like, he just killed all the dark troopers. Like, it's not like we're going to stop him. <laughs> um, and then there's a great entry shot here, right? Like, as, as the lightsaber is visible through the mist outside. It was very evocative Darth Vader. In, yeah, very Vader and very, like, Rogue One in his, like, entrance there, but sort of flipped. And we get the hood pulled back, and it is none other than Luke Skywalker, played by sort of Mark Hamill in probably one of the more contentious parts of this episode. I and I and you and I have talked about this a lot. Every time they do this, it comes back up. It's like I, I for one, and I will stand behind this. Like I think I would rather them recast rather than do CGI, mm-hmm. with like a few few exceptions, like um, when Carrie Fisher passed before they completed the movie, like using that to. Um, finish the the ninth movie but like the Tarkin I, I would much rather us recast than try to reuse because in like five ten years it won't look as good and I would much rather like we because then it, to your point you you said is like when you use CGI it limits then what you can do 
um, and it almost hinders the storytelling. Yeah, I think there's two points here, and you took the long view, which I think is a great point that if you can, if the technology gets better and better to the point where you can essentially flawlessly recreate anybody, like why, why hire new actors? Why look for new talent if you can continuously just bring back people? You know, we could be watching new Cary Grant movies or something, right? Like, does that play into a lack of creativity because it's possible for us to do that thing? Does it make us and limit like our options? There are so many actors, and there's so many great examples of this where, and even Carl Weathers, I think, in season one, right? Like, when he originally was cast in the role, they were planning on killing him off, right, I believe, right, is what you told me? I think so. And then because he has such a connection and such a charisma and because he's such an amazing actor, like, oh, we should change our story to reflect this. Yeah. And I, it's, it's something I'm always a, a little concerned of, like, if had they recast Luke and they're like, oh, actually, you know, this actor is quite good and, you know, there's some warmth here and some chemistry, like, maybe we can go in a totally new direction. And I like that it... it um, it keeps it a variable rather than making it a constant. Yeah. I think the counterpoint here is like in this particular time frame that we're in and given what happens, I think there's a strong argument that like Luke is the most logical choice of to someone to show up, right? Like, yeah, it's the only choice that works. Otherwise, you are making a very big statement. But you had to bring back a Jedi from the Legends world or you're bringing back a character who supposedly is dead. Right. And, and I think none of those have the resonance like everybody watching this show knows who luke skywalker is yeah so that's a great moment and i got to imagine at least part of it is if you're john favreau and dave filoni and you're like get permission to use like the luke skywalker action figure you're like well of course we're gonna use it right <laughs> like like will we turn down an opportunity not to have luke and it's interesting like i actually and this goes back to like as we get through the story like i I was pretty sure, in fact, we even made a bet about this before our season, this last episode ended, is like, I was pretty sure the story of Grogu Mandalorian was going to go on for several more seasons. And mm -hmm. they're like, I was even surprised that they went to the inner core so quickly. I thought it was going to be like several episodes of like, how do you get into the inner core to, what's the name of that? Typhon? Typhon. Typhon. Um, but it ended so quickly versus... I was expecting them to sort of continue going for a long time, so much that I actually made a bet with you that I, I instantly lost. So yeah, it's um, it, it, but instead of clearly wrapping it up and like, yeah, we know Luke is going to set up a Jedi temple. We know Grogu is now going to go be a student there, likely. In fact, he might even be the first student. Yeah, well, probably Leia, but then... Yeah, yes, fair point, fair point. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because... So there's, yeah, there's a lot of things going on here. One, I think Luke is the logical choice for the story. That said... I agree, as you pointed out, one of my, my frustrations with this is because the CGI shots have to be so painstaking, I think it does really limit how much time you can have Luke on screen. Uh, like there's a bit towards the end here where like you see his legs and he's just standing there. And it's like, this is awkward. Like if this was shot from a different angle, he'd just be standing there staring at everybody and not saying anything for like a solid 30 seconds. Um, and he also is limited in terms of like kind of what they do with his face. Like he doesn't crack a smile. Mm -hmm. His dialogue is very limited. And I think that's one of the downsides of leaning heavily on the CGI aspects is just because you want every shot to look good you are like kind of hemmed in a little bit. That said, sometimes constraints, you know, are a great breeding ground for creativity. Um, but mm, for me, I felt like I wanted, if you're going to have Luke there, you want, you want the full Luke experience. And like, that's in some ways un undoable with Mark Hamill because he is much, much older now. I think also one thing that I struggle a little bit here, and I, I told you this this morning, is somebody somebody online somewhere made the argument that these last five minutes of The Mandalorian did more for Luke Skywalker than all of the sequel movies. And I, I disagree. I so disagree with that because I think 
Look, I understand there's a big contingent of people who just wanted to see Luke be awesome. And if that's all you wanted to see, then yeah, I can understand why these last five minutes deliver on that for you. And like, yes, there's a certain amount of catharsis from that, of just seeing like Luke Skywalker kick ass. That said, I think that his arc in The Last Jedi is to me so much more interesting because of the fact that it's not just about a superhero because it's about somebody who has flaws uh and you know this is verging off i know a little bit but i i think that this there's no character development in the five minutes that we see here right no it's, it's, he, a very it's literally deus ex machina who comes in uh, and i agree with that. i think absolutely season eight uh, or episode eight by far um and in fact for, for the listeners who haven't seen i would definitely recommend there's a, a cut scene in episode eight where uh he luke actually pulls a prank i think on ray that also just like adds to it the uh the sense of humor and just um a reverence that he's developed over the years but yeah he basically turns into yoda right (laughs) (laughs) it's like ah, well you get this old you just get to mess with people like that's the fun part um anyway so we have our last scene here where uh you know he's jedi and and the mandalorian's like well this is this is what i've been looking for and so he's telling grogu like all right you gotta you gotta go i love luke's line he's he he wants to go you just need to give him permission and just like again that really uh lovely um father-son bond there yeah and so luke has a bit about talent without training is nothing he won't be safe until he masters his abilities and uh you know which is there's some some foreshadowing there for sure yeah um and some aft shadowing i guess for lack of a better term to where luke has been um and the mandalorian says like you know i'll see you again i promise which i think is foreshadowing to say this is not the last we've seen of grogu or of din's you know relationship with him and then there's this great bit where grogu reaches for his helmet and like starts pawing at the mandalorian's helmet and the mandalorian takes off his helmet without any concern he just he it's great it's it's Without any of the emotional angst that came with when he was at the uh, the Imperial ATM machine back on the planet. He just, yeah, takes it off. And it's it's such a lovely, lovely moment. Well, and it speaks to the character development, right? Like, as you, I think you really adroitly pointed out this time as we were watching it that... Oh, yeah. This, basically, I think since the episode, the first episode with Bo-Katan, at the end there where they part ways, and Bo-Katan says to him, this is the way... I don't think somewhat sardonically like she is clearly mocking him when she says that but he has not really uttered that since then if at all and it seems like again we've discussed this in a bunch of the past uh weeks his faith has wavered like his conviction in his upbringing and the way that he was raised has begun to crack because he's realized there's a larger world out there there are other mandalorians who don't behave the way that he was taught to behave and don't seem to suffer any ill consequences for it. And so, you know, last week we saw him decide to take the helmet off because it was about saving the child. And this week, having saved the child, it was sort of the the bonding moment, you know, the father-son bonding moment where mm. he doesn't, I think you're, it's a, you make the great point, like, he doesn't think twice, even though there's f- five other people in right. the room, you know? He doesn't even address that. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, too, is like, in a moment before, too, of like his just becoming much more practical, right, with with uh, Bo-Katan, right? Bo-Katan's equivalent of This is the Way is essentially how the Darksaber is passed mm-hmm. down. So even though she mocked, essentially, his quote-unquote religion or, or zeal for a certain code, um, in this moment, the uh, our Mandalorian can't understand, or uh, is somewhat yeah. dismissive of her code. Right, exactly. Saying, like, just take it, you know, just take the Darksaber. What does I it don't matter? want it, right? um and yeah exactly i think it's great it's the respective you know not quite people in glass houses but it's it's kind of akin to that um 
So the Mandalorian tells Grogu not to be afraid. And even so, Grogu's like holding on to his boot. Mm. And then R2-D2 shows up. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. <laughs> um, I like to imagine that he was like off in the the uh, the lower decks, just finishing off all the darkness. <laughs> this little Dark zapper. Droids. <laughs> <laughs> or like sweeping them up or something. Or uh, Yeah, and he, he comes by and he's like you know, there to cheer Grogu up, I guess. Uh, and again, you made the point while we were watching it that like it's... Not Is, entirely un- impossible that they knew each other if Grogu was trained at the temple on Coruscant and uh, and uh, R2 was there with Anakin. Who knows? Who knows? Um, Luke scoops up Grogu and uh, says, may the force be with you, and then uh, uh, makes his way to the elevator. And Grogu looks on and the Mandalorian gives him a little nod with a little tear in his eye. And, and that's it. That's the end of the season. Or is it? But wait, there's more. Uh, so after our lovely Renaissance orchestral arrangement. Which of- was so weird. I loved it, but it was so weird. Like, what tone are you trying to set right now, Luke? Yeah, and you called me on it because I, I was, in the first watch through, I think I had missed the fact oh, yeah. that the John Williams themes were played in, and they definitely were played in. Yeah, no, the there was there. an entire, like, we paused, and you were like, I cannot believe they did not include Luke's theme with Luke Skywalker. Well, this is the perfect the time. Theme. And uh, I will confirm that, yes, they did not use Luke's theme until it was fully realized. Because, though I know you may realize, Dan, that someone with only one glove and a green lightsaber is obviously Luke Skywalker, (laughs) not everyone knows every single answer to all the Star Wars trivia questions. (laughs) I feel seen. Um, but after the end credits, uh, we go to Tatooine to Jabba's palace where Bib Fortuna is living large, uh, on Jabba's throne, having apparently escaped the sail barge when it blew up. Uh, somebody shoots their way in, in a scene very reminiscent of, uh, Leia showing up Mm -hmm. in Return of the Jedi coming down the stairs there. And Bib Fortuna utters the words McClunky, which I don't think anybody saw coming, (laughs) (laughs) which if you're not familiar is a... Greedo, something Greedo says in the most recently updated version of A New Hope in the scene in the cantina. Very weird. It was also as a it was also used as a joke in the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. Oh, that's right. This year. Yes. So I love that they have immediately embraced this thing that is less than a year old, I think, uh, and made it a running joke. That's great. Uh, Fennec Shand enters, shoots all the guards, then frees the Twi'lek slave. Uh, and Boba Fett follows her in, and Bib Fortuna makes a game attempt. And again, I will say, and I told this to you too, I was very happy with the very tastefully dressed Twilk. Usually they're a little excessive, but I appreciate that uh, they were not too... Bib Fortuna raised his standards, is what you're yes, saying? Yes, yes, I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate the that we are stopping the objectification of the Twilks. Um, Bib Fortuna makes a game attempt to... Uh, to parlay with boba boba fett ah, i thought you were dead i heard so many rumors it's so good to see you uh fett doesn't care he just kills him throws him off the throne and then sits down and fennec comes and sits on the arm of the throne and it seems like maybe there's some trouble uh, afoot here and we get a blackout followed by the title the book of boba fett coming december 2021 so many questions which has raised a lot of questions it's unclear i've seen a lot of reports i read a lot of stuff i've not seen any official confirmation whether this is season three of the mandalorian is like subtitled the book of boba fett or whether it's a spinoff for my part, I have a hard time imagining that they would run two series starring Mandalorians concurrently. It's not impossible, but it seems weird. Uh, also seems weird that they would decide to shift to a totally different main character, but I guess that's possible. There were kind of persistent weird rumors about Pedro Pascal leaving after season two, but I think it's also possible that he would 
maybe move into like more of a recurring or supporting character role which would i mean all these things are weird and unprecedented it doesn't stop any of them from being things that happen because frankly disney can do whatever it wants <laughs> but yeah and i it still goes back to the question of like whose story are we telling like season one was clearly about the mandalorian season two was honestly about that there the world is so much bigger and here are all these other stories going on i feel like every single episode was more the mandalorian joining someone else's story rather than his own story mm-hmm. um and that i mean clearly that sure. sets up the really fantastic uh investor presentation that we watched <laughs> in disney um explaining like all 1700 star wars shows that are coming but it's a real question of like are thrawn my guess is like they talked eventually that there's going to be a longer term crossover event and i've got to imagine that's thrawn um, which raises the question, if I were the one writing, I would assume then the story of the Mandalorian is going to be going back and retaking Mandalore, right? To your point, mm-hmm. like, we have the Darksaber, we have Bo-Katan, we have an outsider, um, we keep talking about Mandalore, it makes a lot of sense to go back and reclaim it, um, but now we have Boba Fett, like, a crime lord? Yeah, and Mandalore is a, is a thread that Dave Filoni, in particular, keeps coming back to. It figured prominently in several arcs of Clone Wars. It figured prominently in some arcs in Rebels. And we've obviously had a Mandalorian starring series for a while now, so it's not at all a stretch. And, and there's repeated things about how, in this season, there's a couple of different bits about, like, everybody thinks Mandalore is, is gone, basically, has been destroyed, essentially. Mm. And that may am- or may not be the case. Which is amazing, too, because, like, that, the Mandalore was already quite destroyed by its own wars, so that, like, the Mandalore that you see around the time of the clone wars is essentially a desert planet with essentially these um dome cities dome cities right so to be destroyed beyond that is extraordinary yeah right and and there's a big chunk of time missing like we basically don't know anything about what happens to mandalore they call the purge there is the purge yeah like but we know very little about what happened between essentially the end of the clone wars right like the last arc in the Clone Wars show, which is concurrent with Episode Three and the Rise of the Empire, till Rebels, where it shows up again, and it's under sort of Imperial dominion, and then there's basically nothing from the end of Rebels, which is concurrent with the beginning of Episode Four, and now, which is five years after Return of the Jedi. And I struggle with too because the show is called going by like the show is called The Mandalorian, and Boba Fett isn't a Mandalorian, right? They make as they make clear in this episode. But there's but also, some dispute who about that. Who, yeah, who, exactly. Because who gets the, to decide who's a Mandalorian? And the question of the foundling. He is a foundling. He's not a Mandalorian, but he wears the Mandalorian armor. And he said he's a Mandalorian because he follows the code. But if the code doesn't, it gets, I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I think what's interesting about it is like, there's clearly like a Mandalorian diaspora happening. Mm. And I think there are some interesting arguments by the identity of like, well, who gets to decide uh, that you're a real Mandalorian or not? And maybe part of the fact that they infight about all of that so much mm-hmm. is what keeps them down. I think Bo-Katan makes the point in the bar when Casca uh, Reeves is fighting with Boba Fett. Like, if, you, if we'd shown half this much, you know, fine. Sp- spine when the Empire came, then we wouldn't have lost. And the answer is, yeah, maybe you're so bogged down in all your infighting. And of course, that's an also, also a theme in both clone wars and rebels with the mandalorians is that there are different uh, groups within the mandalorians who have different agendas right like people are like we should go back to the militaristic ways no we should try new peaceful ways and the fact that they cannot rise above that is what makes them kind of easy pickings for an outside force like the republic or the empire and i think to, i think that to your point about what story comes next is 
it could it be the Mandalore and the Rise of Mandalore. And that being said, they also Dave Filoni also and John Favreau also spent a lot of time talking about um sorry Dave Filoni on um the Crime Lords. Right, we mm-hmm. do see uh, the Black Sun uh, universe. We do see the Red Dawn. Did I get that right, Red Crimson Dawn? Dawn? Thank you, Crimson Dawn. Uh, the Pikes who control Castle um and the 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 spice trade so which jabba is also involved in somehow in all mm-hmm, this because mm-hmm. uh again this is all fresh in my mind of of mandalore's like the original taking of mandalore by the darth maul was with jabba with, with the huts mm-hmm. right so there is a connection between boba fett jabba the hut and mandalore so it'll be interesting to see this all pulls together again or or if we're going somewhere totally different because right. i guess we're on Tatooine. It's Return of the Jedi. Yeah, we. I mean, when, yeah, I we've know. got other things happening on Tatooine, right? Like we have Cobb Vanth out there. Oh yeah. Uh, like there's, you know, maybe there's a story there. I mean, he was a marshal in one of these series, is the Rangers of the New Republic, who are kind of, I guess, you know, maybe the law enforcement new in public. Could he play a part in that? Could some of that be like taking down Boba Fett? Like, you know, it's like the Wire, but <laughs> in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> They're doing very careful I'm surveillance. Here for this. There's a lot I'm of paperwork. Here for this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of possibility up. It seems very clear that Disney is taking a very sort of MCU approach, mm-hmm, Marvel Cinematic mm-hmm. Universe approach to Star Wars, which I think is smart in the sense that there is, it's a huge universe. There's so many interesting stories to tell. And I think that there's a lot of possibility in there that what we will see will have a larger impact. And it's sort of, you know, this interesting little sandbox for them to play in. Yeah. I'm excited. I again, uh, I've enjoyed all their stories. I enjoy where they're going. I and I'm very happy to go along for the ride. Um, it constantly surprises me the stories they tell, and even when I think I know exactly what story they're going to tell, they tell it differently than I expect. And I've I've really enjoyed that. So, for example, episode seven, oh, when they're they I, we know like they have to go somewhere. They've got to do a heist. They've got to get the codes. Okay, this will be a very standard heist story. Um, it was it was not it was a lovely lovely story and ended up being far more about the mandalorian and his face working with a former sort of nemesis um so yeah. much more human than you expect there's interesting shadings in there yeah. i think somebody i think it was last week uh jason tossing tachi my guest described it as like it's predictable but in a really satisfying way mm. like it, it sort of sets its marks and then it hits its marks like very just like square on right it's like it's like calling a shot right like you're like oh, i'm gonna hit this next ball over that wall over there mm. and then just nailing it right yeah it's, it's like there's no surprise you know they were gonna say it but the, the fact that they land it and they do yeah. it in such a way that feels good is so much of what makes this show work it's like it's not like it's constantly surprising you you can't pull a an i am your father revelation out of your hat every week but you can tell interesting stories mm-hmm. even if you feel like you know where it's going that's i absolutely agree 100 percent agree with that all right well that's the end of the episode the end of the season we talked a little bit about what's happening next season any last thoughts before we wrap up here i'm still the the thron the ahsoka thread i am still very intrigued mm-hmm. to see how that plays out um and as they said there's stuff going on in the outer rim that we don't really know about mm-hmm. i'm still interested to see long term we're going to see the rise of the first order um is the first order the same as thron's group mm-hmm. um lots and lots of questions and really excited to see where this comes out and still the fundamental question with ahsoka now is where is ezra bridger mm-hmm. yeah that's why you immediately after we finished the show friday night you immediately started us watching <laughs> rebels again <laughs> that uh, is a fact uh yeah no i'm with you i think thrawn is one of my favorite villains of all time has been uh, just from the beginning um i really love ahsoka and so putting those two in a show together to me is like 
chef's kiss. Like I'm, I'm here for that. I'm very excited for the possibility. And frankly, I know there are a lot of people arguing about fan service and pandering. And it's like, you know what? A, I'm a fan. I'm here to be pandered to a little bit. It's- and B, just to say, not everything is fan service if it has a point in serving the story. Like there's, they're telling a story and they're putting these things in there because it makes sense, right? To the point of Luke. I think Luke's there because he's the most logical choice to show up there, not just to delight fans, but because it makes sense. Yeah, I absolutely agree. All right. Well, that's the end of season two of The Mandalorian. Um, I just want to say thank you to everybody out there who's listened to the podcast this season and have had some very kind words to say about it. It's been a lot of fun to do. I'm really excited to come back for whatever the next season looks like and also to cover whatever other Star Wars things come our way, because I think I'll probably be talking about those, too. And this week especially, I want to send, extend huge thanks to my guest, Kat Benish. Thank you so much for being here and talking about this this whole season with me. It's been a delight. I know we've watched it together and talked a lot already, but it's nice to do it on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me in, and thank you for, uh, for folks for, uh, for listening. And uh, happy holidays. And that's it for this show. Until we come back next time, whenever that may be, remember, this is the way. <laughs> <laughs>